with us. Especially there are more than 60 of you who this is your first retreat. A retreat like this, and as you know, they are for varying lengths of time, can be quite, quite a bit longer, months, and even longer for people, uh, can be invaluable. Maybe you've seen that during this weekend. Uh, if not, you'll have to take it on faith that uh, there are a fair number of human beings over thousands of years who have found the temporary removal of ourselves from daily life from all the requirements, responsibilities, hustle and bustle, we all know, the temp- temporarily removing ourselves from that uh, and placing ourselves in an environment which totally supports mindfulness, learning, stillness and so forth, the development of wisdom, uh, can be like a miracle, very, very helpful. And yet, if you attach to it, to continue this unfolding of the Four Noble Truths, if you attach to it, uh, you can turn it into, uh, you can undermine yourself. Because finally, it's still a form, a very, very useful one, devised, came out of the brilliance of the human mind. It's in all religions. Everyone appreciates the the value of uh, getting off by yourself for a while or with a group of like-minded people as here. And yet if you attach to it, attach to cravings for it, at first that's very good because it gets you to come, gets you to turn up here. And and as you know, it's not always fun and games. It can be very hard work. Um, And that's good. So I would never want to squelch that. But what uh, happens if you really take to it, maybe the danger is only for those of us who really are drawn to this, is that we set up, we create a dichotomy in the mind. It's an emotional one which we may not even agree to intellectually. We may totally be unaware that we're living this way. But, but what is in fact true is that uh, real living is here. And what goes on when we get home kind of gets in the way of spiritual practice. Uh, it's just noisy and people don't behave the way you want them to and the phones are ringing and nothing, uh, you just can't uh, compare to when you come up here, meals served and birds chirping away. <laughs> and then we go home to the dirty world out there. And it becomes kind of schizophrenic. You don't get hospitalized for it, but uh, this is spiritual, that's worldly. And our living becomes motivated towards coming back here as often as we can, getting the money to come back here. Even wearing as kind of campaign ribbons, the number of retreats you've done, the teachers you're with, you know, kind of you develop a nice resume that you proudly answer when you get the information sheet at the beginning of a retreat. Christopher in 1983 and Joseph in 19. Um, in the meantime, your life is in shambles back home. 
you can't earn a living, living. Your relationships are full of uh, fighting and you're a malcontent. And you just live to come back here uh, in this gilded cage, in this hothouse, where everything is nice and tidy. Now, it isn't, as you know. It shouldn't really be called a retreat because it's far from a retreat. It's, if anything, it's an attack. <laughs> you know, because you're really dealing with the most difficult person of all, yourself. Okay, so one thing that can help is to view life as an undivided, seamless whole. Life is, is prior to retreat. It's prior to Vipassana. It's prior to Zen. It's prior to any of these forms that the, the genius of the human race has, has come up with. Uh, it's there. It just is. And we're fortunate that we have some of these very useful forms that enable us to get to know life in a more intimate and vivid way and to learn from it and to correct ways of living that don't work and that produce suffering for ourselves and others. So the attitude, uh, this is not revolutionary on my part. It comes from the Buddha. The Buddha says, be mindful in all four postures, a rather unassuming way of saying, your whole life. Pay attention to everything you do. We're always in one of the four postures or on the way from one into another. Standing, sitting, lying down and walking. It's always going to be that way. So in one sense, this is a magnificent stage set. And the curtain is dropping. It's time to go back to another stage set in a way, you know, which is Harvard Square for me and I don't know what for you. But if you have an attitude of uh, living wholeheartedly then practice and life are really not separate. For myself, the advice that I got from the very, my first teacher has stayed with me and has prevented certain kinds of problems that I see a lot of. And I'm very grateful for that. It was very simple advice. It was some, whatever you do, do it. Do it wholeheartedly. Nothing is trivial. Nothing is uh, irrelevant. Everything is precious because it's whatever you encounter is your life. It's you. And so instead of, that isn't typically how we live. We have special times and special people, special food and special occasions. And the rest of the time we're at least half asleep. We don't value it. Uh, it's kind of we want to get rid of it so that we can do what we really want to do. The approach of practice, if you go to a good monastery, this is what happens is that uh, you don't like to wash the dishes, great, you're assigned, you get, you get dishes. If you're a professor, they ship you right to the toilets. <laughs> Whatever you need. The point is to break down this rigid picking and choosing. I like, I don't like, uh, which is strong in the United States, or in the West in general. So it's an attitude of facing life directly, wholeheartedly. And it's not a split. It's not that there's life and then there's spiritual life. If you practice this way, they're the same. That is, every relationship, everything that you do is an opportunity to develop mindfulness and insight. It's also an opportunity to fall asleep. And we keep doing one or another. If you take to this practice, then what it is is a commitment to decisively turn in the direction of awareness. You will fall asleep billions of times. I do. Sorry to discourage you. I should have said that at the beginning, maybe. <laughs> then you could have gotten your money back. 
but there's a decisive turn towards living a life of wakefulness, of a willingness to learn from what life teaches us. Life is constantly teaching without stop. And the practice is designed to help us learn what life is teaching us. For example, it is teaching us that everything is impermanent. That lesson is being broadcast very loudly, 24 hours a day, wherever you look. A fallen leaf, a gray hair, a tooth that, has, uh, that needs repair. It's all over the place. Uh, what is lacking are some students. The curriculum is all set. We need some students, and that's us. So when you go home, if you can, instead of viewing it as, as somehow spiritually inferior, uh, it's in its own ways quite challenging. I don't know what you go home to, but wasn't this challenging? I mean, keeping quiet so much, and you don't have control over waiting on lines and eating what people give you, and your body hurts, and so forth. It's a different kind of challenge. But now, instead of seeing, let's say, relationships, which, some, which seem to be, for so many of us, a battlefield, Unfortunately, the human race, we have not learned how to live together. In the extreme, we declare war and kill each other. But even without that, we make it so hard, we make it such a battlefield. Now, uh, the job of a Vipassana yogi is to begin to, to examine your life exactly as it is. Begin to see how you actually live. This is the daily life portion. Not how you think you live or some ideal or some image you have of yourself or what your parents tell you about yourself or what you should be like. But from moment to moment, how do you actually live? And only you can do that and can learn from it. The learning is immediate. Uh, and it's not something that you have to accumulate or put into notebooks. But rather, in the moment, you keep learning about how you're living and revision takes place, comes out of it. Because when you're sensitive and willing to learn... Uh, the changes, wisdom comes from foolishness. Where else is wisdom going to come from? We, do, we put our hand in fire, we burn ourselves. That's a foolish thing to do. We don't do it anymore. And so the practice can help us in the same way, learn the art of living. Mainly the art of living is learned by seeing how we don't know how to live. I'm not saying this is a condemnation, but just as a neutral fact. We don't fully know how to live with each other or by ourselves. That's not a um, criminal offense. It just may turn out to be a fact. Maybe it's not true for you. But I find it true. And so, starting a, uh, a sitting practice would be very helpful when you go home, a regular sitting practice. How long should I sit is a common question. I haven't the vaguest idea. I don't know how long you should sit. It would vary very much from person to person. It would have to do with the conditions of the rest of your life, your motivation. Uh, for some people, now it's easier when we're all here together because the, the force, the, the power of the Sangha, the community of practitioners, makes us all stronger. We can do a lot of things that it's hard to do on our own. But when you get home, you may or may not have a community to practice with. Probably most of you don't have a community to practice with, in this way anyway. Um, Get a sense of, uh, for one person, a half an hour is e an eternity. Uh, so that you perhaps sit for 25 minutes, but go a little bit beyond that. Go to a half an hour and experience, uh, push your edge a little bit. Someone else is just getting warmed up at an hour. 
and they can sit for an hour and a half. Again, you have constraints of time in terms of jobs and so forth and the level of commitment. You can't be more committed than you are. I mean, if you try to falsify it, imitating someone, probably you'll fall on your face. And so, uh, be honest with yourself, but the regularity is important, day in and day out. Some days you don't feel like sitting, you sit anyway. And you look at the mind that doesn't want to sit. Some days you love to sit, you sit. Maybe it's only three minutes because you have to catch a plane somewhere. Okay, sit for three minutes so that that flame is kept aware, awake, (coughs) alive. Do some sitting. If you have time, you can do some walking as well. And then begin the practice. I can only give you the general instructions, which are very simple, but it'll take you your whole life to refine it because it's about refining your life. Pay attention to everything that you do. Begin to look at the world in a fresh way, particularly your part in it. From moment to moment, moment, notice we all necessarily are acting in one way or another. Notice your reactions to people, to places, to, to the weather even. What it takes to throw you off. The newspaper says it's going to be a beautiful day tomorrow and you get all set and then it rains. Does that spoil your whole day? What's that about? Now, one of the uh, most helpful clues and signals come from the Four Noble Truths. Anytime you find yourself suffering, remember the First Noble Truth of Dukkha, it's like an alarm that goes off. See if this is so. If you find yourself suffering even a little bit, because it can be small things, look and see, is there anything that I'm holding on to? Is there some attachment here? I don't mean to put it there. I mean to inquire, to look into it. If there's suffering, what the teaching is saying is is there's a good chance that there's some attachment there. You're wanting things to be a certain way. They're not that way. And we suffer as a result. So suffering can be a a very good wake-up call, directing us where to look. And you look right into the suffering itself. Inside of it, you will see, if there is attachment, you'll see it. You'll see you wanted it to be X, but it turned out to be Y. And hours are going by. You're resenting that life is the way it is. You want your friend to be quiet today, but they're very talkative. And you brood. All these things can be seen and learned from and let go of. So the Four Noble Truths is not reserved for formal practice here at IMS or some other place. It's, uh, it's meant to be taken into life. And I would say that practice, if done wholeheartedly, uh, enables you to, you know, so many of us say we're afraid of death. And yet what I've found is that it seems to go together with being afraid of life. I have a hunch there are just as many people afraid of life, and maybe the two are the same thing. I would say real practice is enabling us to face our lives. And if there is fear of living, I'm not talking about dying, which of course we all have fear of, until if we don't begin to see the ways in which fear, for example, hampers us. It limits us. We can't do all kinds of things because we think we're not the kind of person who can do that. The practice is meant to take that on. Look at it. Relationship. If you look at it one way, it interferes with your meditation practice because it stirs up so much. If you look at it another way, it's a great teacher. 
If you're bothered by someone, it's pointing out something about you. Now, the relationship has its own reality, things that have to be dealt with. But it also shows that you're the kind of person who can still be bothered by X, Y, or Z. And so, relationship is a, a wonderful mirror. Relationship with children, with parents, with friends, with anyone. And really anything. Relationship to the weather, to hot and cold, uh, to food. Before you know it, it becomes everything. And it becomes, if you look at it this way, quite an adventure. The adventure is an adventure in, in awareness and learning. Uh, for me personally, uh, it has made all the difference. It's the one thing that I found in my life that gets better the more I do of it. I've worn everything else out. Or it's worn me out. <laughs> this one just gets better all the time. Uh, I saw in a magazine, see the time of Newsweek, the last great frontier, and it was about the oceans. Uh, that's the last great frontier or challenge. And I looked at it and I just felt like this is why the human race is in such trouble. We really think that this is the last frontier. The last frontier is obviously ourselves. It's, the, it's consciousness itself. The real crisis in the world is not a crisis in technology or oil or war. It's a crisis in consciousness. I don't want to get up on my soapbox, which I'm able to do on this subject. I'll spare you, and we also don't have that much time. But uh, there's a rich world awaiting you if you turn in the direction of consciousness. The learning that goes on is well beyond what we think is the realm of learning, which is mainly concepts, books, stuff about stuff. There's much more in back of all these ideas. Now, again, this is not suggesting that thought is no good or quit your university position. It's not saying that at all. What it's saying is there's much more to life than thinking. In fact, thinking, beautiful as it is, uh, becomes refined once you tap the realm that's before thinking, which is vast and infinite. And that's where meditation leads you to. It takes you to that which is before thinking whatever name you want to give it. Okay, what, uh, in this particular method, anapanasati, full awareness of breathing, when you sit down on your cushion at home, you can practice along the lines that you learned here. Start off with the breath as an exclusive object, but continue to use the breath uh, as your mind calms down. Stay in touch with the breathing as you open up to everything, as you sit in the midst of your experience. And if you're able to do that, then you stay there. If it finds that you feel if you find that you're feeling exhausted, or you're getting entangled and lost in the productions of your mind, come back to the breath once again, and then working back and forth creatively and realistically. With the breath as an exclusive object, the breath as an anchor, uh, helping you to, to learn about all that is other than breath. But in this method, the breath is used a lot. Daily life, you unfold your legs. It's time to go to work, go to school, be with your children, whatever it is you do next. Even there, conscious breathing can be an immense help. Let me give you a few very um, humble examples of how it can be useful. 
First of all, let me encourage you to, to keep the breath in mind throughout the day. Uh, places where uh, you can begin to learn how to remember to do this are like a red light. The car stops and instead of being obsessed and impatient about green coming, let red be like a temple bell. And what red is saying, it's time to be with your breathing. Not so much that you don't notice green when it comes, or you become a real hazard on the highway. But you uh, drop into, maybe it's just two minutes of conscious breathing. If you're on the road a lot, you can see that adds up, and you may find that there's a bit of calm that's and re- refreshment that comes to you throughout the day. You're waiting for an elevator, similar. You're waiting for a clerk to finish up uh, billing you. And in those minute and a half, so three minutes, you're in touch with the breathing, not uh, absorbed so much that you're a social misfit, but these situations, which are, there are many of them, don't ask much of us. You're sitting on a train or a bus or waiting for, you're online for, at a supermarket. There, you'll see there really is a lot of time. You can be in touch with the breathing. You also can use the breath by uniting it with activities that you do to help you stay alert in action. When you're driving, of course, your primary attention should be on driving, on the road, on other cars, etc. But the more you do of this method, the more you cultivate it, the more you keep the breath in mind, you have to understand that the more natural it becomes to notice that you're breathing. Also, the quality of the breath changes. If you are applying mindfulness to the breath a lot, day in and day out, a kind of breath therapy takes place, even though we don't call it that, which has innumerable health benefits, especially energy. So that you learn how to weave the breath into the situations of your life, uh, helping you to, to stay mindful. Now here, to avoid confusion, the basic teaching of the Buddha is to be mindful from moment to moment. If conscious breathing helps you, be mindful, then it's wonderful. Use it. But there are some situations where you can't use conscious breathing to stay mindful because there's too much going on. Maybe there are just a lot of people and it's uh, exciting and active. and uh, Probably you won't be able to be with the breath, but you can be, with mi- you can be mindful. You can learn how to be mindful in any situation. It's a training. It's something that if you practice it, you'll begin to learn it. If you don't, you won't learn it. It's like anything else, it's an art. And like any other art, it has to be practiced. One of the beauties of using the breath to help develop mindfulness is its utter simplicity, its naturalness, its ongoing quality. For example, when you're busy, you're not too busy to breathe. When you're bored, you're still breathing. When you're angry, you're breathing. When you're happy, you're breathing. When you're uh, with your family, you're breathing. When you're alone, you're breathing. The fact that the breath is always there. Uh, I think what the Buddha did is discovered an obvious fact, because he used this method himself, and then saw the implications of it. Everyone knows that the breath is vital. How could it not be? It's life and death itself. But he noticed that the, uh, the constant attention to it was extremely helpful, not just in formal meditation practice, but as much as possible throughout life. And that if you do it, it becomes very strong. And so slowly begin that, but 
finally, the essence of the Buddha's teaching has to do with paying attention. Some people are very drawn to using the breath in the way in which I'm suggesting it. Obviously, I'm one of them. But it isn't for everyone. Mindfulness is, in, is necessary in every Buddhist practice. Using breath as much as I do, or based on this sutra which the Buddha gave us, is not necessarily for everyone. So you may find that maybe this weekend has taught you that. That, yes, the mindful it's okay, but uh, a lot of the time I really don't want to be with the breath, I just want to practice mindfulness. Fine. Mindfulness is necessary. There's no way around that. Without mindfulness, there's no practice. Without attention, wakefulness, whatever language you like, it's just not, it would just be cardboard. It would just be a bunch of words, beautiful words. So attention runs through the heart of insight meditation. Insights come from attention. You can't make an insight happen. You really can't practice insight. That's a misnomer. You can practice attention. And when you're attentive, insights come to you. But you can't make an insight happen. That, that's just not, it doesn't work that way. So the most important thing is to practice a life of wakefulness. And whatever helps you with that, a mantra, mental notes, the breath, I'm sure there are other things. Uh, great. But the key thing is this wakeful quality so that you face life directly and that you learn from it. And in the learning comes the freedom and fulfillment. Is there anything that you can add to all this? There's so much that could be said, but in the time we have... Uh, I think I would like to add another dimension of our experience which both underlies and accompanies the practice of mindfulness and that is uh, the necessity for cultivating a sense of moral integrity There are two fruits to this practice, wisdom and compassion. They go hand in hand, and one doesn't come to the final goal with only one. So a concern for how we live our lives, the way in which we do things, is imperative. The precepts are very simple, so simple that they may seem to have nothing to do with us. Not to kill, not to steal, uh, not to lie, not to conduct ourselves sexually in any uh, immoral way, um, not to indulge in intoxicants. Um, we're all decent people, and we probably feel none of this is relevant but the interesting thing about this little list of injunctions is that they can be refined and refined and refined. Uh, not to kill, not to destroy life, if we take that seriously, turns itself around so that we begin to respect life, care about this person <clears throat> or this plant or this animal this situation, to care about it, to want to nurture it, help it to prosper in a brand new way. To leave here knowing that we need to be mindful is part of what the great lesson is. The other part is 
to leave knowing that we need to be careful with what we do. And the more mindful we are, the more careful we become. They go hand in hand. But let this also be uh, a dimension of your active concern from now on. few moments left. Any questions about the daily life aspect of practice? Please. How long should the interval be between in-breathing and out-breathing? Should it be longer and longer if we can manage it? Um, have you been here for the whole retreat? Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what the emphasis is on is not on regulating the breath at all. Just allowing the breath uh, to happen naturally. And so whatever the interval is, that's what it is. Uh, but um, the gap does grow as the, as the breathing becomes more conscious. Whereas what happens is the breath becomes more refined, more subtle. In fact, it gets to the point where it feels as if you're not breathing at all. But that's just, uh, it's nothing to worry about, but uh, when the mind gets very, very quiet. Yeah. Please. I have a question about things like ambition, striving, desire to do good, and yes. that evil in daily life. In a sense, the form of truth is a form of craving, and needs to be looked at and possibly put down. But at the same time, it seems to me that we can't really dispense with it. Dispense with what? A desire to achieve things, to do things. Yes. Do you think the Buddha was a lazy person? No, he clearly wasn't. Yeah. But there's some sort of contradiction that I can't quite Yes, I understand. Yes. Um, some of it has to do with a misconception that we all have, or we don't have the uh, experience. That is, it's as if the only way we can arouse energy develop energy is through competition. Somehow, if we don't develop competition, we'll all be under a tree having siesta time, you know, just uh, lying in hammocks and just sleeping for 20 hours a day. There is another energy that people can work from called love. There, there's a tr- tremendous uh, motivation that comes from a different source altogether. I don't think Mother Teresa is competing with anyone. Maybe she is, but it doesn't seem like she is. Uh, so the point is, uh, it isn't the only way to even develop human excellence. But in our culture, and maybe many cultures, for all I know most, uh, competition has been used in that way. Uh, to, to enter into life wholeheartedly and fully does not require comparison. It is not the only way to generate energy, although it's the one that probably most of us have been brought up with. And so it's hard to understand that a tremendous kind of energy can come which has nothing to do with comparison at all. Now, some of this gets easier as the meditation deepens. Because as the meditation deepens, what you discover is you have a source of energy which is before thinking. It has, you don't need to, in a sense, play mental games 
to arouse motivation because all the energy you could ever want is already in you. All of us have it. No one's been shortchanged. But as long as the energy is tied up on the level of concepts, likes and dislikes and so forth, we're not, in a sense, as being uh, dispersed. As the mind gets quieter, not only do you find you have tremendous energy, uh, but, for example, take the precepts. To begin with, uh, we have, there are methods in, in Buddhism uh, which cultivate loving kindness, compassion. It's sort of working from the outside in. Necessary to replace a lot of destructive patterns that we have. As you go deeper, you'll find that what we call compassion seems to be innate. Certain that real love it comes from within. It's not something that needs to be cultivated. Uh, so when you see somebody who's hungry, you would like to do something to see to it that they're fed. It doesn't have to have the striving, ambition, craving, and all, all that the Four Noble Truths imply. Do, do you see what I'm getting at? Okay. Yes. Yes. One of the uh, some of the the greatest suffering in this world has come from uh, religion, hasn't it? By all kinds of people who have the answer for us, and a lot of attempts at, uh, at what you're talking about have produced incalculable human suffering in the name of God, in the name of Christianity, in the name of anything. Okay. Um, How we go about being of use to the world makes all the difference. The motivation, where we are. Uh, If, you see, if our work towards trying to improve the world is still basically lodged in the ego, it's still essentially in the service of me and mine, then what we do is likely to be less effective. the urge to do something for other people, to help other people, is best done if you've, if you've taken care of your own suffering. Definitely what we're suggesting here is, a, for many of us, a shift in priorities. It's not that you abandon the world until you get to be perfect. But there are, part of the problem has been that a lot of people trying to change everyone else who have not begun to work on themselves. <coughs> We want a peaceful world, and then we blame particular leaders who brought us to war, whereas really we're all responsible. If, you still, if you're against war, do you still have any violence in yourself? Are you still dealing uh, with aggression in ways in which you're harsh and cruel? Not, not singling you out, all of us. If you're going to become someone trying to end war, and you haven't begun to end the war in yourself, do you think you have much of a chance of being useful? So uh, it's, it's not either or, because actually this is a difficult one for people to get, especially at the beginning. I often get asked this question. Well, isn't it selfish to do all this meditation? There's so much to be done outside, out there in the world. This is not saying to eliminate soup kitchens, charity, and so forth. Not at all. But in a very profound way, the greatest gift that you can give life is you. That is, if you work on your limitations, 
ways in which you're uh, handicapped uh, in terms of, let's say, uh, relations with humans. Uh, meditation is about that. What, however you are, however each one of us is, that's what we have to give people. We put our stamp on everything we do. And so, if you, the greatest contribution to the world would be a few more sane, gentle, genuinely peace-loving people. So when you work on yourself, uh, if you see it in a, uh, a snapshot way, you just look at a person, oh, look at them, they're just sitting on their cushion for two days. That seems pretty self-indulgent and selfish. It can be. This meditation can be misused and just be another uh, exercise in narcissism, high-class narcissism. But that's not what the practice is designed to do, quite the contrary. So, uh, as you work on yourself, that's what you bring to the world and whatever your work is. Should you want to do good works in the world, wonderful. The world needs all the help it can get. But it might be coming from a place of sanity and fulfillment rather than, again, the ego coloring what it does and backfiring because, it, uh, because of its nature. The ego can never be happy. I don't know if you agree with that. I would, I would be willing to make that an absolute. It is impossible for the ego to be happy. I've seen this in myself. There's no way in which your ego can be happy. If you want to go about perfecting it, good luck. It's a hopeless task. So, in this way of looking at things, as you work on yourself, you're also working on the world. After all, you are the world. You're part of it. Is that getting closer? One quick one, please. It's more of a dilemma, you know, along with the precepts and not the harm, and also going along with what you just said on not trying to change the world and change yourself. No, I didn't say don't try to change the world. The world could use some changing. Right. But let's make sure. Work on yourself first. Yes. Uh, how do you uh, deal with Yes. Yes, I understand. Yeah. Okay, you've asked a big question actually. How to how to meditate in a world of non-meditators? How to be a vegetarian in a world of meat eaters? Um, you know, I can't answer that for you except that I live under those conditions. I'm vegetarian. Most of the people that I know are not. I allow them the right to eat the way they want to. They know the same things I know. They say, I don't go around preaching all day long about, uh, you know, slaughterhouses and all the rest of it. Uh, now and then it does come out. Uh, I, for example, remember being uh, these people, I think it was at a retreat here, where there were four or five people who were in animal rights and were doing active work about not... Uh, not to purchase fur coats and uh, how animals are used for cosmetic experimentation. And then I assumed that they were vegetarians. And I said, well, I guess you're vegetarian, right? And they said, oh, no, no, we're not vegetarian. So I said, well, I don't get it. I mean, it's, it, if you kill animals for a fur coat, it's no good. But if you kill it to eat them, it's all right. Did you ask the animals what they think about it? You know. um, but if you want to change the whole planet to vegetarianism, I would just, uh, good luck. I don't think you can. I also, I'm not sure that that's the highest. See, what the world is really lacking from this point of view is understanding. 
if there was more understanding, a lot of things would change. I don't know if everyone would automatically become vegetarian. Probably not. There are many, look, the Dalai Lama eats meat and Adolf Hitler was vegetarian. That makes things a little complicated. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to, in a sense, um, your challenge, I think, will be, because for all of us, I certainly know what you're talking about, is to have respect for other people's way of life. Uh, For example, respect people's right to not meditate. Some of you may, if you've become very zealous about how wonderful Vipassana is, be careful. You know, how you can now spread it to your parents and your children. It doesn't work. Just exemplify it in your action. By the same token, if you're going to turn everyone into a vegetarian, I I hope I'm not around when you start doing it. Uh, Let it be a lesson. Take care of yourself. You be vegetarian. Now, but then again, finally, you'll have to decide. I mean, maybe you can't buy meat for them. Maybe it's really repulsive for you so that you can only shop for yourself and someone else has to go out and buy the meat. I don't know, but um, that's what wisdom is about. Wisdom has, always has a particular context and a particular application. You can read wise books that are wise in general, and then when finally you look around your house and it's crawling with ants and you have to decide, do I kill them or don't I kill them? Each person has to decide. The precepts finally is your, it's your relationship with yourself. There's no polizai, you know, there's no police that are going to enforce the five precepts. It's about your relationship with yourself. And if all of us took those precepts seriously, that is as a reflection, knowing that it may be impossible to 100% follow any of those precepts, I myself think that's so, which is no reason to not be oriented. It gives you an orientation, like the North Star. You'll never reach the North Star, but you at least know the direction. It gives you the right direction. The five precepts give us the right direction. And sometimes life is just much more complicated. And uh, things happen. So uh, that's about it. Okay, this will have to be our last... Yes? Very good. Um, I feel that somebody summarized what you said in the following way. Don't work for improving the world until you work on yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know whether that's what you said. I think that's not, that's not what I got. Because if first we work on ourselves and really change ourselves, we may never get to work. Yeah, I'm not saying that. But I don't think so. Yeah. So I just wanted to say that what I, what I got from you is don't work on, work on improving the world without working on yourself. Yes. But, you know, also we have to allow for individual dif- uh, differences. For example, uh, this is a very complicated one. Uh, some people have a very strong contemplative dimension. They're natural contemplatives. To insist that that person be serving in soup kitchens and doing all kinds of other good work that's needed out there is a mistake because they can be of more benefit to the human race by going deeply because of their particular gift. Again, they of course will have contact with people. Uh, there are certain hermits. I spend time with a number of hermits in Asia. Uh, one hermit who'd been lived in a cave for he didn't even know how long and he didn't know how old he was was an extraordinary gift to the human race and he wasn't doing social good in our terms but when people would come to visit him something that he learned by being alone and by going deeply into silence uh, gave him a clarity that was so helpful to someone like myself who had come from a very busy life so I wouldn't want to squeeze everyone into the same mold some people may not meditate at all 
or do very little meditation. But their way of doing, their path may be much more of good works. I wouldn't want to say that they have to be squeezed into retreat life all the time because they're not going to be able to do it. They don't want to do it. So we have to allow for a variety of different ways to live usefully. We don't have a long time to live on this planet. It seems to me, in the simplest terms, uh, how can we live most usefully and do, and when we leave, have uh, done something useful, whatever that is. And each person has to find their own way of, their own choice. What I am saying is, uh, personally, I, don't, I do a fair amount of sitting, and I've done at times a lot of sitting. And, but I don't just sit. I'm involved with people. I do my best with my parents, who are now elderly. I do my best in other ways, and yet my priority is very high on this. But I don't feel that that's, this is the oniest way, that everyone's just somehow got to sit on the cushion for months on end. It, it, it's a, to me, that would be childish. We have to, do, do you see what I'm getting at? So that you can grow in both realms simultaneously. What I am saying is there is, right now, the planet is overdeveloped in terms of applying intelligence to technology, to the mastery of outer reality. There's no, it's brilliant. The computers are extraordinary. And we have not grown since, probably since Stone Age times. We're just as primitive. The mind that uh, hits you with a club now they hit you with a button that sends a missile. Have we really developed? So there's definitely some redress is needed. We've got to move things more towards... There is a, an uncharted frontier. It's inner. It's, we're totally undeveloped. Certainly the modern world is undeveloped. The ancients knew more about this, it seems. Certainly some ancient, ancient civilizations. So from that point of view... Uh, we're redressing an imbalance, but all the time understanding that there's individual variation. We all have a different part to play. Why don't we end on that note? Could we have a moment's silence, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.